0: This morning, I want to offer you my third installment in a series of sermons that are based on the soteriological doctrine of adoption. I'm calling the series A Family Made in Heaven, and today's message I have titled From Enemies to Sons, which is riffing on the language of the Bible that it uses, the Bible uses, to unpack soteriology. Uh, which is the study of ology, sotera, salvation, soteriology, the study of salvation. So by way of introduction, let me briefly uh, get into some of the things that we have covered thus far in our series. And then I want to dig into some new ground uh, in in, in the scripture and just keep building on what we're building on. So by way of introduction, um, we have in previous weeks been looking at this soteriological doctrine of adoption. This morning I'm going to take you into 1 John, but I want to make a pit stop in the book of Ephesians. So if you would open your Bibles to Ephesians. And I want to uh, just kind of reflect on something that we looked at last week by way of introduction to get us uh, going again on this theme. So November in our culture is National Adoption Month. It is celebrated in all 50 states, in the District of Columbia, and in Puerto Rico, our nation... Uh, is thinking this month in the month of November about the sociological phenomenon that is uh, adoption and welcoming the orphan. Adoption is the act of taking voluntarily a child of other parents and making that child uh, your, one's own child. In a theological sense, this social act of welcoming a child into your home, in a theological spiritual sense, the, the Bible uses the language of adoption to talk about what God has done for us. Uh, like the orphaned, we we were not we were not born into the world as God's children. We were born into the world, in fact, as we'll see in first John, as children of the darkness, and God decided to shine his light and to welcome us into his home and make us his own children. Sonship language, by the way, in the first century, so ladies in the house, you're included in this sonship talk. And the and the point of the gendered language in that culture is that sons had the rights of inheritance. And so Uh, The authors of Scripture talk about salvation, being saved, as an act of adoption where we, men and women, are made sons of God, that is to say, legal heirs. We have been taken voluntarily by God. We were not His children, but He made us His children in the act of salvation. In the New Testament, the word that is used for adoption, it literally means in the original language, placing as a son. It is a legal term that expresses the process by which one is taken from not being in the family and then brought legally into the family. So uh, we're going to continue building on that, but just by way of review, we've been talking about the doctrine of adoption and really grounding it in our doctrine of God and the gospel. Ephesians chapter 1, which I ask you to turn to, look at how Paul begins this letter with a focus on God and gospel. Chapter 1, verse 1, Paul, the Apostle of Christ, Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are at Ephesus, who are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places in Christ. This sermon series I'm calling A Family Made in Heaven. Here you see Paul as he opens this first century letter to the church in Ephesus talking about a family made in heaven. He's talking about grace and and blessings that are coming from the heavens. Uh, We'll continue reading in the text, and in a moment we'll see how Paul then moves from talking about God and gospel, these graces that are poured out from the heavens to us, and how he then weaves into it this metaphor of adoption to describe what God has done. Before looking at what God has done, let us uh, remind ourselves of who God is. We have discussed in this uh, sermon series the wondrous doctrine of the triunity of God. Namely, that there is one and only one true and living God. That the one God eternally exists in three persons, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. These three persons are equal in attributes, each with the same divine nature. And while each person is fully and completely God, the persons are not identical. They are distinct. And speaking of the distinctions, what is important uh, in our understanding of, of God is that within these distinctions, we have a father and a son. So as we're talking about adoption, understand that before, there's, uh, before there was creation, before anything, there was eternally existing in the one true and living God, a father and son relationship. Uh, This is not a metaphor. God is eternally this way. There are three persons in God and these persons are persons. They're not names or titles. These are actual persons who have actual relationships with one another. Hence, in, in this, we see a personal and relational matter of a father and a son. So as we're talking about being made sons of God or children of God, first let's talk about God and see that eternally in God there is a father and son relationship among the persons. I want you to see that this is really real and not a metaphor. This is, I mean, when we're talking about God as Father or there being a son in God, these aren't metaphors. Further, they are not anthropomorphisms. An anthropomorphism is when we use human characteristics, attributes, or relations of a human form to speak of something that is non-human. Father is not an anthropomorphism. It's not a metaphor. Follow me. You see, the Bible does not use this father and son language as a metaphor for us to understand God in some anthropomorphic way of speaking about God so, so that we can, like, understand Him. As, as Paul opens, blessed be, right, God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. There's no hint of a metaphor or an anthropomorphism here, okay? This, this isn't language for us to understand God by way of some, some child metaphor for us to get. No, we're not projecting Our notion of God and uh, a father-son onto God, we, we don't project that on him. It's actually the other way around. Instead of speaking about an anthropomorphism, we should be talking about theomorphism, which is to say that there really is a father and there really is a son. And these aren't anthropomorphic. They're actually theomorphic. They were true of God before any of us were here. Hang on, listen. Our speech about God should come from God. It should come from his self-expression of us. God has revealed to us who he is, right? And so we, 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 we shouldn't tell him, no, 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 that's not who you are. That's just a metaphor. No, no, no. Th- this is who he is. Uh, and friends, that's what the Bible is. It is God's self-expression of himself to creation. Now, certainly, there are metaphors and anthropomorphisms inside of the Bible. For example, God is said in the Bible to wrap his wings around us, but we don't think God is a big bird, do we? Uh, Right? That's Sesame Street. That's not God. So so you have anthropomorphisms, like wings. Or, for example, God is anthropomorphically said to have hands and eyes and feet. Uh, But those are anthropomorphisms, because we know that God is non-material. He's non-physical. So... He doesn't have a shoe size or hands or need gloves or anything like that. And there is indication in the text that we should be reading those as metaphors and anthropomorphisms as opposed to literal statements. However, as it relates to father and son, those are very literal. Those are very real. The word father is is a real term. And in God, we have a father and a son. If if God never created the world, if there were no fathers on earth, or even humans for that matter, the first person of the triune God would still be father in himself, and not simply with reference to us. Now, in in God, you would also have a real son, which leads to the second point there. Uh, We have the incarnation of God the Son, fundamental to who God is and what God has done. There is this eternal God, Father, Son, and Spirit, who's created the world. And in the world, like turned around and dissed God and rejected his love and rejected his will and way. Humanity declared war on God from the beginning and as a result we're born into a world that is filled with war and violence and I'm not talking about Hamas Israel I'm talking about humanity versus God. Uh, humanity did it on October 7 on God in Genesis 3. He said, I'm just going to mess up, uh, Eden. I'm going to rebel against you. And as a result, it just rippled into the creation. But God, being merciful, this blessed God who has given grace, verse 2, to us, saw fit that in the face of human rebellion to actually enter into the creation and take it upon himself. So the father's son actually enters into humanity and becomes a biological son in creation. And, and, and as a biological son in creation, he takes on human flesh. He's fully human and fully divine. And in this humanity, now having flesh, he can die in the place of sinners. As a human, he can stand in our place. He can be vicarious. He can be a substitute. He can die as a sacrifice. And further, as God, it is his prerogative to forgive for only God alone can forgive sinners. And ultimately, sin is an offense against the Creator... And so as the Creator, who's one with the Father and the Spirit, He then can give us forgiveness. This is not abstract. This is actual. God the Father is sending His Son to die for us. And as we're going to see in the Scripture, this is explained in terms of adoption. The Son became a Son of the earth in order for those in the earth who were not sons to be made sons by His work and by what He has accomplished for us. And as a result, when we look at adoption as a metaphor in culture, we see the sociological act of adopting, welcoming kids into our home. It is ultimately a reminder of what God has done for us. In our, in our family, we, we've adopted uh, three sons. We fostered another little guy too who went back into the system. And I tell you what, it has been uh, the most life-changing radical experience ever in my life. And every morning when I wake up and I see my sons, I am reminded of what God has done for me, as I look at them in our home. You know, children who weren't born into the home, but they are in the home and they are family as biological family. And you look at that and you see pictures of that. There's my little Jer bear. How cute is that little Jer bear? Uh, I mean, you see him and you just go, man, that's my, that's my guy, you know, and we'll be at the, the mall or the, the Ralph's or whatever. And people will go, is that your son? I go, yeah, that's my son. I go, he doesn't look like you. I'm like that was a really awkward thing to say but I'll take it okay so he doesn't he doesn't look like me I tell you what I don't look like my dad either and what does your dad look like and I go he's perfect he's holy he's triune they're like what you know and next thing you know I'm talking about God and they're like hey hey don't shove your religion down my throat I go you're the one who brought it up awkwardly in front of my adopted son but uh, hey I was adopted by God And he's adopted by me. Uh, And God can adopt you if you turn from your sin and believe in him and get right. Uh, You know, I'm just trying to buy a rotisserie chicken here. Settle down. (laughs) It's a beautiful picture. The soteriology of adoption is fundamental in Scripture, reminding us of what God has done. In Ephesians, Paul gets out the gate in his letter to the church of Ephesus, just just. Like, oh my gosh, look at what God has done for us. Let's pick up at verse 4 and see how he weaves the metaphor in. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him in love, he predestined us to the adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself. According to the kind attention of his will, to the praise of his glory and his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished on us. In all wisdom and insight, He made known to us the mystery of His will, according to His kind intention, which He purposed in Him, with a view to the administration suitable to the fullness of the times. That is, the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens, things in the earth. In Him also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined, According to the purpose, uh, who works all things after the counsel of his will to the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of his glory in him. You also, after listening to the message of the truth, the gospel of your salvation, having believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. We're called his possession. We belong to him how 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 amazing is that we we declared war on god humanity did and we're born into a world that is as filled with rage against god and wants nothing to do with god and and in our pride and arrogance we actually convince ourselves that we're spiritual and you know we're okay and you know you you christians you're the narrow-minded bigots or whatever but we're fine we're spiritual all the while all the while we have blood on our hands we've rejected god you know, you know what's interesting about these verses here that we just read? From verse 3 to verse 14, in the original Greek language, it's one sentence. Which is why I wanted to read it in one sweep, because it's one sentence. All the English majors in the house are like, that's a run-on, I know, but it's inspired by the Holy Spirit, so, you know, so deal with it. It's, it's a long run-on sentence. The Holy Spirit inspired this run-on so that we would see our sin, we would see the Savior, we would see the blessings, we would see His grace, and we would see what He has accomplished for us in saving us. Not only did He save us from the penalty that we deserve because we've rebelled against God, He didn't just rescue us from penalty, He brought us home. He brought us home. I I was raised in a broken home. Um, it, It was really rough. Scarred for life. I mean, it's just—it was rough. It was rough. Um, in in my in my late teens, early twenties, I I met Erica, who became my wife. She was raised in a in a in a proper home, with a mom and a dad and love and six kids and you know just snakes. That's weird. I should have left that out, but. I hate reptiles but you know like pets and kids and love and small little house in the South Bay one bathroom Um, my father-in-law made a shower for himself outside because he could never get in the bathroom and you know it's just they 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 had very little but they had each other the girls all slept like on on one one mattress like they they had each other they had this whole family and I, I remember my first time over at the house you know it was like this this it's it, 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 the feeling of it like being in a home with a mom and a dad and all this love you know I was like man I, I didn't have any of this there was a bookshelf at the house I'll never forget and they had photo albums for every year of each kid's life they had a photo album big old bookshelf you know just here's my seventh year of life here's my eight year of life here's for each kid you know I was like who wow that's and I thought to myself in that moment, I don't have a photo album. We don't have a family photo album. Don't have one. I don't have a photo album. I'm 20 years old. I don't have a photo album. Uh, my si- who became my sister-in-law actually uh, found out about this, and she she you know went pilfering through things and. Uh, I think it was for Christmas or maybe a birthday or something. She gave me my first photo album. Just took pictures, you know, the pictures that I did have, Put on, I still have it, it's at the house, it's blue. And there's, you know, photo album moving from, you know, little, little baby with a big old head, still got the big head. I grew into it, right? And then, uh, you know, and then up to where I met my wife and their family. And then you keep going through the photo album, and it moves from brokenness to wholeness. To, ...to being made a part of family. That's, that's our Gospel. That we go from brokenness to wholeness, we go from darkness to, to light... ...and this was all God's plan. You see, you see in the text here, we see in the first six verses, the Father planned this. He predestined it, the text said. Uh, the word that is used here in the Greek, praorizo, it's, it, it it means to decide beforehand. That's what adoption is. It's a, it's a decision that is made. Uh, you know, our, our biological kids, they just come. You know, it's like, all right, that's what we got. You know, <laughs> yeah, there we go. You know, but an adopted child, you, you choose that. You pro-orizo. You decide. And so God, God in pro of us, he has blessed us and given us something that we otherwise would never had. He does this by grace, it wasn't because we were being spiritual, or we believed the right things about God, or we joined the right religion, or whatever. Yeah, there is right religion, there is true faith, but all of that is a gift that God gives to us. It's grace, because by definition we didn't deserve it, we didn't have it coming. A paycheck is coming, you earn a paycheck, that's not grace. A trophy is not grace. A trophy is won by hard work. Then again, in our culture, everyone gets these participation trophies. So that illustration is going away fast. Everyone's a winner. No, no. There there is a team that wins and there's a team that loses. And the team that won did it by hard work. That's not grace. It's work. Work doesn't obtain grace. Grace defies work. Grace is giving to the undeserving, the lazy, the undesirous. As it relates to salvation, no mortal deserves to be saved... ...for we have all rebelled against the immortal God. We have not worked. We, 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 we have been lazy. Worse yet, we have broken God's holy law. And since God is holy and not corrupt... ...he cannot by his nature turn a blind eye to our sin. He's obligated to be just because he's a God of justice. And that means he... Unfortunately, that's the bad news. He has to punish wrongdoing. And there's not a person hearing the sound of my voice... ...who's made through it unscathed. We've all done wrong. And there is not an arbitrary third party... ...who can handle this for us. But praise be to God... ...that the Father chose. Pro orito; He chose not to send a third party... ...but to come Himself in the sending of His Son... ...who would come and would die in our place. He took the bullet for us. He sat in the electric chair for us. Worse, it was a cross. And He paid that death for us. And if you come to Him... You can be set free from that penalty. You can have life, everlasting life. And this is why Paul, in this long run-on sentence, just keeps saying, Blessed, blessed. Look at verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father. Verse 6, to the praise of our glory. Why are you praising? Because verse 4, he chose us. Because verse 5, he predestined us. Verse 7, in Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace. That's what the Son has done. He redeems. To redeem is to purchase, to buy. Adoption is, uh, requires finances. You, you spend money in adoption. There's court fees. There's all kinds of things in it. It's intentional. It's deliberate. It's sacrificial. Speaking of sacrifice, that leads us to the next point. The son pays. In verses 7 through 12, we read of the son paying. In him, we have redemption. Verse 10, he speaks of being in Christ. Notice the preposition in verse 5. It is through who? It is through Christ that the father has made us sons. He is the one who paid for us. He paid the adoption fees. And the fees were not money. They were his blood. It it cost him his life. As adopted sons, we receive sonship in the son. Hence, we are spoken of in verse 11 as inheritors. My sons, my sons are full heirs of my estate. When, when you go through the adoption process and you go to court to finalize the adoption, the judge in every instance, and I love, I love going to adoption court when friends adopt. It's one of the most beautiful things you sit there with the judge and the judge reads through you know the 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 law and talks about that this this child right is is full heir in adoption the rights of the natural parents and their responsibilities are terminated and the rights and the responsibilities of the adopted parents are given all of my stuff is their stuff all that i have is theirs All, all that the biological children have is theirs there's no difference whatsoever in the law and existentially. I don't I don't see a difference whatsoever. An adopted child has the same entitled rights as the natural child, among other things, they obtain inheritance, they obtain love, they obtain family, they obtain a photo book, right? With their faces in it, and a family. And nothing can erase that, which leads to the next subpoint here. In this long run-on sentence, Paul talks about the father planning, the son paying and the spirit persevering the holy spirit secures the adoption look at verse 13 it says that you were sealed with the holy spirit a seal is used as a security measure in the ancient world a, a seal fastened a, a a letter it fastens things it, it holds it shut it keeps it safe in addition to safety the seal is a picture of ownership you can't seal what is not yours you lock your car. You can't lock your neighbor's car. You have the keys to your car. It's yours, so you secure it. You seal it. You own it. Sealing is a picture of ownership, church. In the ancient world, the property was marked with a seal, like branding animals. They, they, they seal. That, that's mine. That belongs to me. It was common for religions in the ancient world to also have seals. Kind of like a, I don't know, WWJD bracelet. Uh, Those were all the rage in the 90s. I don't know if they're still around. But, you know, it's like, hey, I'm on Team Jesus, right? You show a seal. This identifies you. Dr. Clinton Arnold, noted New Testament scholar, says, the one true God has marked his possessions by means of a seal. Yet his seal does not leave a physical impression. It has given his people the gift of the Holy Spirit as a sign of their belonging to him. Paul sees the Spirit as the one who marks us and says we belong, the Spirit as, the down, as, as applying the down payment of the work of Christ and making us inheritors and, and giving us this, this whole reality and persevering with us in it, lest otherwise we ruin it or lose it. Salvation is not like your wallet or your keys that you can lose. It's, it's not something that you have been given, it's something that has been done to you. The Spirit seals you. This is mind-blowing. No wonder Paul's language in this long sentence is just praise and blessing and praise and blessing. Let's move from Ephesians chapter 1 to to the right in your Bibles and find your way to the epistles of John. Specifically the first epistle, what we call 1 John. 1 John was written in the first century by the Apostle John. His eyewitness... ...of the historical Jesus, he knew him. Who not better to listen to than someone who knew Jesus... ...to find out more about Jesus and what Jesus has done? In John's epistle, as he describes what Jesus has done for us... ...the work of salvation... ...he's going to apply, just like the Apostle Paul... ...this metaphor of adoption to talk about what God has done to us. Look at 1 John. Draw your your eyes to the third chapter of 1 John. And find your way to the 7th verse in the 3rd chapter. John, 1 John 3, verse 7. You see it? Little children, make sure that no one deceives you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. The one who practices sin is of the devil. For the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. No one who is born of God practices sin because his seed abides in him and he cannot sin because he is born of God. By this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. For this is the message which you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another, not as Cain, who was of the evil one and slew his brother. And for what reason did he slay him? Because his deeds were evil. And his brothers were righteous. As as described to you already, uh, the God whose Father, Son, and Spirit created the universe. This is simple science. Uh, we have the law of cause and effect. All, all effects have causes. This is fundamental to science. When I meet people who are like, You're so smart. Why do you believe in God? That's dumb. It's like it's fundamental to science. Everything that has a beginning has a cause. The universe had a beginning. So the universe had a cause it's fundamental to science the universe wasn't always here it came into existence it's called the cosmological singularity or more popularly the big bang i tell you what whenever you see a bang there's a banger (laughs) like bangs don't just bang you know some someone smacked their hands together that's how that works cause and effect everything that has a beginning has a cause the universe had a beginning so the universe had a cause Whatever caused the universe can't be what the universe is. So the universe itself is, uh, is inanimate matter. So whatever caused the universe will be the opposite of that. Namely, animate, an immaterial, animate thing. That's what God is. He's immaterial. He's animate. He's alive. He's personal. He's Father, Son, and Spirit. He, he creates the world. He gives life to, to creation. He, he pours His love all over it and then creation rebels against Him. It, it's a story of unrequited love. If you've ever had someone cheat on you or reject you or whatever, you, you know that kind of pain. Just imagine the pain of a, of a perfect Creator having the creation turn on Him. And so what John is describing here is our condition. He speaks of Cain and Abel. Those were the first kids... Those were the first kids, the first gender reveal party, if you can still do those, right? It's Cain and Abel. And what do they do? It's a mess. You go, what has happened to humanity? John goes, you, you know the fall, you know Cain and Abel, you know this rebellion. And he describes those outside of God's graces as Satan's children. Highly politically incorrect. Uh, you know, who are you, John, to say everyone's Satan's children? John's not the one who's saying it. This is revelation from God through John. And it's not meant to be some point the finger or whatever. It, it, it's, he's just telling the truth. If I, if I go to the doctor and they run the blood or whatever and they find cancer in it and the doctor says, you have cancer. I, Who are you to say, i have cancer. I, I wasn't judging you. I'm just letting you know your condition. That's all. John's letting us know our condition. We're born children of the darkness, children of the devil. It's a sobering line. He, he goes back to the beginning. He's the word beginning, verse 11. In John chapter 8, Jesus gave a profound teaching on this as well. I'll put it in front of you. On being children of God, Juxtaposed those who were, John 8, of your father, the devil. Look, there's two families. There's the family of darkness and the family of light. There's, there's no other family that you're in. It's, it's one or the other. There's, there's two roads. You're on one or you're on the other. There's a north, there's a south, there's an east, there's a west. The, these, these are the options available to us. Who, who are you in? Jesus isn't saying this and John isn't saying this because they get off on putting people down because of their religion or their, 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 their moral life or lack thereof or whatever. They're not, they're not doing it for that. They're doing it because they have a message of love and a message of salvation to welcome children of the devil, into God's family. So John describes salvation as being welcomed into God's family. Look at the verses just before where where we started. I I started us intentionally, right, late in the game where he's talking about the children of the devil. But look at verse 1 of chapter 3. See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us that we would be called children of God and such we are. For this reason, the world does not know us, because it didn't know Him. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We, we know that when He appears, we will be like Him, because He, because we'll be like Him, because we will see Him and just as He is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on Him purifies himself just as He is pure. Everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. And you know that He appeared in order to Take away sins. And in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him sins. No one who sins has seen him or knows him. Look, there's two paths. There's two ways. There's the darkness. There's the light. There's sin. And there's redemption. which, Which are you on? Beloved, see how great the love of the Father has bestowed on us that we would be called children of God. And such we are. Check that out. John's saying this isn't just a metaphor, being children of God. Such we are. We really are. As eternally there is a Father and Son in God, you have been brought into that through the Son. And who the Son sets free, He sets free indeed. And so our lives will be marked by a kind of holiness... And lawfulness that says, I'm not going to live my life in lawlessness. I'm not going to live my life in the darkness. I'm, not, I'm, I, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm not going to live my life further apologizing for God's truths. Because when someone welcomes you into your family and changes you and forgives you and loves you, you can't, you can't tolerate wickedness, evil, things that go against the family. You'll fight for your family because this family has loved you and so your allegiance will be with them and so for for us for us brothers and sisters and when i say brothers and sisters such we are god gives us a family and that that family forever changes us and so we have solidarity and and mission together to say beloved look at what god has done for us in john chapter 11 we read of the Chief priests and the Pharisees, the, the haters who were drinking that haterade on Jesus. Jesus uh, was, was working miracles and telling people the truth and they're fit to be tired about it. And they, they were mad and they were trying to tell people don't follow after him or whatever. And we read in John 11 of the historical figure Caiaphas, verse 49, then not of his own initiative prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation, Verse 51. I love that. You have a guy who's not on the team, but God is using to make prophecy. And when he communicated this, if you see up here in verse 51, he communicated that it was not for the nation only, but in order that he might gather together into, one, the children of God who are scattered abroad. The work of salvation is a work of adoption. In John 12, verse 35, Jesus said, For a little while longer the light is among you, walk while you have light so that the darkness will not overtake you. He who walks in the darkness does not know where he goes. While you have light, believe in the light so that you may become sons of the light. Jesus spoke these things and he went away and he hid himself from them. So, so part of this being made sons, part of this adoption, it, it, part of this grace, it's not our works, it's grace, it's a gift that he does to us, but it changes us, the text is telling us. When you're brought into the family, it changes the way you do things, because you know what? Every family has its idiosyncrasies. Every family has its recipes, right? Do you put sugar on your grits or salt on your grits? You know, uh, is it is it Popeyes or is it Chick-fil-A? You know, like we all have our way of doing things in our families. And so, too, morally and spiritually, when you're brought in, it he changes you. He, it, he changes what you think about stuff. He changes how you live. He changes what makes you upset. He changes what makes you cry. He, cha- he changes you. The creator who made the planet, who made the cosmos, starts changing you. And you go, man, I, if you would have told me uh, however many years ago that I would think this, I would have said, get out of here with that. Yeah, now you think that, right? Now you're one of those narrow-minded, weirdo Christians. Praise be to God that He did that to you and made you a part of a family that you wouldn't belong to and you wouldn't deserve to participate in, because you were enemies of that family. You were children of the devil, John says. Look back at the text, verse 13. Do not be surprised, brethren, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brethren, He who does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us. So we ought to lay down our lives for our brethren. Whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how how does the love of God abide in him? Little children, let us not love with word and tongue, but in deed and in truth. Right? Show me, show, me by, show me by your life that you're in the light. Uh, we, we, we've all experienced this, the hypocrisy of spiritual people. Uh, the hypocrisy even of, of Christians who say they're Christian and, they're, and their life looks nothing like it. John, John's like, hey, look, if you're really in the family, your, your life is going to look different. And it's not because of you, it's because of who our father is. And it's because of who our big brother is, Jesus. It's because of his power through the spirit in the church at work changing our lives. And you know that that work is going to make us a little bit different. So the world's going to hate you for it. John tells the audience, hey, don't be surprised if, if people don't like you or people are upset. Uh, just, just today I was seeing on social media. I'm like, man, we're in November and I see people complaining about... Uh, put Jesus back in Christmas. And I'm like, yeah, I mean, yeah, Christ in Christmas. Don't X him out. Uh, which the, the X is actually the chi and it actually symbols Christ anyway. So uh, that didn't work. It doesn't mean you're xing out Christ. But anyway, you know, like the holidays come and it's like happy holidays and you're like, no, Merry Christmas, you know. And, and in North America, we, we have all these comforts and whatever. So we can get cranky When people happy holiday us, we get cranky and we're like, put Jesus back in. You know, you're like, look, John said the world's going to hate us. Happy holidays. You know, toughen up, buttercup. Yeah, the world's not going to like us. Yeah, they don't celebrate Christmas with us, you know. So what? That's the least of our concerns. Our concern is apart from the grace of God in Christ, we too would be drinking the Haterade, cranky at Christmas, trying to X them out and doing all of that. Brothers, if the world hates you, get them back. No, that's not what he says. If they, if they hate you, cancel them. No, all this cancel culture, all, this, all these shenanigans going on, those are the deeds of darkness. We don't cancel people, we turn the other cheek and we say, I love you. We say, I love you when they say happy holidays Or when they do even worse. There's Christians dying in Gaza right now. There's Christians dying in Israel. There's Christians dying in the Jordan. There's Christians dying in Lebanon and Syria. There's Christians dying in China. There's real governments that really oppose and kill our brothers and sisters. We have it so good. And we should use this comfort in order to mobilize mission to fuel this message of God and Christ reconciling the world to Himself. Points of conclusion here. The darkness was defeated in Christ. This is a part of our doctrine of adoption. The one who practices sin is of the devil, First John says. For the devil has sinned from the beginning, but the Son of God appeared for this purpose. For what? To destroy the works of the devil. The cross of Calvary is a, a message of a vicarious atonement, and a, and a victorious accomplishment. He, is, he has undone the powers of evil and sin. Um, while, while we believe in a future day of judgment, while we believe in a millennial reign of Christ, we are wholehearted optimists. Satan is, has been dethroned. He, he might be the lowercase g god of this world, the lowercase p prince of this world, but, but he's been defanged and punked and beat down like Debo in a driveway on a Friday. And some of you will understand that reference. He's, he's punked the kingdom of darkness. And so John, as he talks about adoption, you see it weaving in. He's admonishing, like, hey, live, live for God. You know, don't, don't do all this sin stuff, man. Like, come on, like, walk with him. Secondly, John reminds us that the world is not happy about our adoption. They're not happy about this. Do not be surprised, brethren, that the world hates you. The, the, the world not, is not happy about it. Now, we shouldn't go out of our way to make it more unhappy for them. Plenty of Christians do that. They, they get aggressive and tribal and, and act like the world. We shouldn't go out of our way to do those things. But when the world is unhappy with us, rather than reacting, we need to pause and be reminded that that's exactly where we would be, but by the, the grace of God in Christ. Finally, we need to be reminded that the son is not happy about it either. We see in these verses references to the return of the son. We read of the hope of his return. In the Gospel of John, John says in John 14, I will not leave you as orphans, I will come to you. He's coming back. And this is why when we watch the news and we see, you know, the violence and the wickedness going on in the Middle East and We see it in our own nation as well. We see hypocrisy, violence, and and, and darkness, and all the rest. We're reminded that this ultimately is going to have its day of judgment. And we would be swept in judgment too. But God. But God. Sent the Son to die in the place for us. In that while we were yet sinners, we could be reconciled to Him. And so as we come to the communion table this morning we are reminded of where we would be apart from Him. As we sing songs of worship this morning, we are reminded, the title of my sermon this morning is what? From Enemies to Sons. We've been rescued. We've been rescued. We've been set free. And we've been given a place at His table, in His family. The communion table is a reminder that we're family. Families have tables, and you're welcome at the table to come. You can come to Him. You can be set free. And you can rejoice in all that he has done for you. Blessed be, as we saw in Ephesians. So I'm going to pray. And I invite you this this day to come to him in faith. Cry out to him. Cry out to him. and, and, And enjoy communion. And enjoy our final songs of worship as we close our service. Would you bow your heads and hearts and let's pray. Father, we thank you. That when we say, Father... We're not being metaphorical. It's actually real. That is so awesome. To call you our Father. And Lord, we, we come here this day with heavy burdens for those in our lives who don't know you as a loving Father. Uh, to them, you are at best a distant dad, or a twisted uncle, or a complete foreign stranger. Who, who, and they want nothing to do with him father we thank you that you didn't leave us in such a position but you came and changed us you poured out your spirit to regenerate us while we were kicking and screaming against you you gave us new hearts and you took us from rebellious kicking and screaming into a holy loving embrace calling us sons making us your children as we come to the communion table here this morning I, I pray that the reality of this adoptive work would be pressed into our hearts. This is the third Sunday we've been talking about this wondrous doctrine, and I pray you'll just keep pressing it into us. As well, I I, I pray for this evening, for our four o'clock seminar, Lord, that you would uh, give us a passion for the social work of adoption, that, Lord, is a reality mirroring this soteriological work of adoption. So bless this Sunday as we seek to grow in understanding adoption, both socially and spiritually. And now, Father, as we come to the table and rejoice in your Son, who is broken for us, we pray, Lord, that you would be magnified and glorified in this time of remembrance. Lord Jesus, we pray that, Lord, you would make us aware of your presence as we celebrate the table. Lord Jesus, draw us in repentance and faith. Uh, we are prone to sin and prone to wandering and prone to convincing ourselves that we're fine. We're prone to pride, where we hold on and we dig in our heels. Lord, in your, in your love, in your love, take away our pride. Lift our, our feet out of the ground. Lord, will your grace change us this morning? Surely it will. Lord, have your way with us as we conclude the service with communion and song. I ask this in Christ's name, amen.